it's kind of funny when people refer to the lapse sometimes. Um, they say, you know, I love what you guys do. Or if they're not talking to me directly, they might say something like, the people at the lapse or, or the folks at the lapse. Maybe it's the quality of the show, or maybe they haven't actually listened to it. But there are no you guys or you folks or you people, you people. Now, uh, the lapse is recorded, scripted, produced, and edited by just one person, and uh, that person is me. Which is why when I say, like, hey, if you have a buck or two, it actually makes the biggest difference ever, as far as donating to a show goes, because this isn't NPR or, or Radiotopia. If you donate to it, it's not being split two dozen ways. It's just going to one person. And by, by extension, that is the show in its entirety. So maybe you don't donate to podcasts, maybe you don't donate to anything uh, that's free, because why should you? It's free. But I'm going to ask you anyway, consider a small monthly donation, less than the cost of bus fare, a, a buck, two bucks, three bucks, however much it costs you to take the bus. I don't know where you live. Uh, it's 275 here, by the way. Patreon.com slash the laps. That's all it takes to keep this show going. I'm working overtime on this one because for just three bucks, you'll get episodes a full seven days early, way before they show up here. And that's actually at a minimum. It's whenever I get them done. Bonus episodes, uh, bonus mini-sodes, stuff you will not find in this feed. You can interact with me directly. There's even an option. I'll write you a handwritten letter, a handwritten thank you with a pen. I don't use pens. I don't have good penmanship. But I will write you a letter and put a stamp on it and mail it to your house just to thank you for donating. Again, that's at patreon.com slash the laps. Thank you for making this a reality. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Lap Storytelling Podcast, where we tell true stories gussied up. I'm your host, Kyle Jest, and today we have got a story from Andrea Abbott. If you've been listening to Laps for a while, or uh, you've heard the best of year one, I think that this story reminds me a lot of an episode of the show we did called Meet My Rapist. The subject matter of that episode and of this one is not a light one, but Andrea, like Jesse from that episode, is just kind of so inherently funny and self-reflective that that lightness still manages to come through. This is one of those interviews, and I occasionally do this from time to time, where I'm not going to narrate at all. This is just going to be Andrea from here on out. For all the mothers and fathers who are absolutely nothing like the two you're about to hear, I'm calling this one with their boots on. See with your ears, this is The Lapse. It was a rule that my father had only one person at a time. It would be like having a rule of one person swimming in the pool. You could fit like 20 people on this trampoline. That's how big it was. My brother and I were jumping on the trampoline together. We don't notice that my dad's car has pulled up, he has parked, and he has now spotted us there jumping. He starts taking these large rocks that we had for decorative value, pelting us with the rocks and making us continue to jump. We had to keep jumping so that we would learn that jumping with two people on the trampoline is dangerous. That's a good example of my father. I feared him quite a lot. I used to hang out in the closet. There was a foyer when you come in, and then there was a hallway off to the right, and there was a closet where people put coats and luggage. 
I would be a gypsy that could read your fortunes if you came into the closet and pushed the coats behind and there I was and I would tell. So that was like a fun pastime, but it was also a way to like, just don't be seen and, and you won't get hurt. The best times I ever spent with my mom were driving around in our country squire station wagon. You know, it was late, let's say nine till 11 when I was eight or nine looking for him, hunting him down because he hadn't come home and she was going to find the girl that he was sticking his dick into. That's what she used to say. I don't want him sticking his dick. And I, at this time, didn't really know about sex too much or whatever, but she told me, like, when someone sticks their dick in someone, it's called making love. I thought, oh, making love means that if you do that action, then the girl has to love you. It's like makes you love her. That's what making love is. It makes you love them, even if you don't like them. Because I couldn't understand why anybody would like my daddy. He was so mean. And we had a lot of fun driving around at night with her hunting him down. I felt like Nancy Drew. It was a bar attached to a restaurant, and it was a big to-do in our town. My dad's sitting at the bar with this younger Spanish girl who's wearing jeans and has her name engraved in the leather on her belt. My mom was very Anne Margaret, always well-dressed and hair perfectly in place and pointy boobs and like very sex kitten-like. There's dad at the bar and we've, we've found them, you know, we've hit the jackpot All we do is walk past quickly and go to the women's restroom. She was not into making a scene at all. At another lady's house, it was summer, and my mom said I could wait outside. I'm sitting out in the backyard and dangling my feet in the pool. My mom comes out 25 miles an hour, racing as fast as she goes, Run! So I grab my sandals, and I'm running with her to the car. That was another fun time. As my mother said, I'm hopelessly addicted to your father. I'm hopelessly addicted to him. She used to wear nighttime makeup. In case my father awoke in the middle of the night, she would look really pretty laying there. My dad would be laying on the couch, you know, drinking a beer and watching a football game. If he was wearing shorts, she'd be like, look at his calves, look at his calves. My mom always thought she was too beautiful to have friends. I think it's more that she was like dysfunctional and, and alcoholic and so forth. She was bedridden often and or recuperating. You had a concept that she was fragile. So fragile that she had this beautiful silver comb and brush set. I think I had gotten my dress dirty, getting ready for church. She grabbed that brush from her little brush set and was racing after me in her heels. I almost made it to the trampoline and she caught me and started whacking me with that brush. I remember being kind of proud of her, like, wow, look how strong mom is. Like she ran over here, she hit me with the brush. You know, when your parents are fragile, especially my mom being suicidal, you worry about them. Mom would wake me up often in the night, wake me up to tell me goodbye because she was going to kill herself. My job was, and I, I feel like I know this as well as I know any other thing I learned by rote, 
if you wake up and find me dead in the morning, you have to promise, promise to take my contacts out because I cannot wear them for eternity. They're too painful. You have to know if mommy's dead, what are you going to do? Take your contacts out. At the beginning, I would be like, mom, you're scaring me. Then she'd all be like, you, you're not the person who's going to die. Mom, that's not going to happen. Mom, you're going to be here. No, you don't know that. Mom, I will take your contacts out. I promise you. Okay, thank you, sweetheart. You know, I love you so much. And your father's just love After it became more of a regular occurrence, you get more used to that. This is what she does. This is, you know, the routine. Some parents, you know, put their kids to bed at night and some parents wake them up in the middle of the night and tell them they're killing themselves. Sis, she called me sis. Sis, you just don't know how it is to be with your father. Sis, go get me a cup of coffee, all right? Make it the way mommy likes it. My mom, as you may kind of put together, was a little um, tiny bit insane. My dad wasn't so great either, but he was just more in the, I'm fucking people, including my children, and beating anybody if they bother me, which is a little more, you know, on the nose. I didn't tell my mother, and I never told her until she walked in on it, because my mother was very suicidal. She wouldn't handle this, and I didn't want to burden her with any more than she already had. The dominant motto of our house was, you tell no one. No one knows. No one knows what happens. People don't need to know our business. Don't tell anyone what's going on. Your father hit me. Don't tell anyone. You had sex with your father. Don't tell anyone. Your father made your brother eat maggots out of the dog bowl. Don't tell anyone. So we didn't tell anyone, including our grandparents. We just weren't supposed to talk about it. Once my mom found out that my father was having sex with me, I was asked to leave the house. She sent me to live with the uh, housekeepers, two wonderful black women, and they were very sane and very moral. They were mother and daughter team, and I got to see a true family, this black family that sang together. They had this organ, and they could play songs on it. They were honest. They were hardworking. They said they'd do something. Then that meant they were going to do it. They were available and stable and, you know, they made you breakfast. They didn't have all these rigid rules that we had, and I felt very, very safe there. That was fantastic. My mom had to, like, threaten me that I was going to be a lesbian if I didn't go back. Honey, you have to talk to your father. You're going to be a lesbian. Do you want to be a lesbian? The way my mom used it, it seemed like you would be a soldier girl or something. Like, you're going to be this girl that's like a girl that's like a boy. And a boy, to me, was my father. And I didn't want to be anything like that. Like, a mean, sadistic girl is kind of the thought I had of what a lesbian was. Get in the car. You're going to be a... Do you want to be a lesbian? Now get in the car. We're driving back. She's just, she's telling me how hard this has been for her. I just hope, sis, that when you grow up, you do not marry a man who has sex with your daughter. I don't want you to know the kind of pain that I've been through. Now when we have sex, it feels like a thousand bees are stinging me. I do not want you to ever have to go through this. 
not only are no things her fault, but like no other people exist. They actually went on a second honeymoon to Italy to kind of rekindle their relationship. But my mom married a, a, a Pontiac dealer in uh, Arizona. Mom divorced the Pontiac guy. Then my mom and dad got back together, remarried each other. That only lasted a, a year or so. Then my mom Left again and went back with the Pontiac and guy. And from there, she married an Irish guy who died of alcohol poisoning. The lawyer to my grandparents. They died. She married. She's married quite a few people, but she always would say she loved my father and that we would never know how painful it was to love somebody who chose every day not to love you back. Which is why she was a suspect when my father was murdered. My husband at the time informed me because he answered the phone. He was considered that he like all the way through the first funeral. My mother, well, she didn't come to the first funeral because she wasn't invited. My dad's parents did not care for my mother. She was the villain of the piece in their mind. Their son could do no wrong. She couldn't get over it. She was the one that said, I don't believe he fell. I don't believe it was an accident. She insisted that he be dug up and an autopsy performed. And so they dug him up and they did an autopsy and he was murdered. His bedroom was on the second floor of this little house. The concept that we first had was that he was so drunk that he fell over the balcony and that fall killed him. But the thing is, he didn't land on the rocks. He landed in a tree before he hit the rocks. When they looked at all the pictures they had taken, the blow that was to the back of his head did not come from hitting any of those branches. He was hit over the head, then pushed over the balcony cause of death did not coincide with his impact in the tree. He's a cold case. No one ever figured out who did it. He was married to a girl that was younger than me at this time. She was um, arrested for a while, but then they let her go. She said she slept through it. Because the wife was a suspect, my mom was kind of a hero because she's the one that insisted that it was murder. We had a second funeral, and so she was invited to that one. And that was actually a nicer funeral. One of the best. <laughs> I remember I had gone out to lunch with him one time when he was a little bit sober, and I went to visit him. Lunch is pretty good because you wake up at 11, you have one beer, now you're going to eat something. We were at this little restaurant, and he looked at this old couple that were sitting in the restaurant with us, and he said, ugh, I'd never want to be old like that. Look at them. They have nothing to talk about. They can't eat anything. That would be horrible. And so I thought my dad kind of got what he wished for. 
You know, he used to smoke his camel cigarettes or his marble cigarettes, like very Clint Eastwood in his way that he smoked and the way that the smoke got in his eyes and it looked like it was really painful. Clint Eastwood, Scarface, all those guys, they don't die of cancer laying in their bed and family around them. They get taken out and that's like the way to go. You know, that's... Yeah, then I was taken out by I don't know who, but better than I fell over a balcony. I didn't cry when my father died. I didn't. I, I thought, oh, okay, you know, all right, good, good, okay, good. There was just a sense of calm that that pervaded our family when each parent died. She planned her funeral for years. She didn't have very big weddings anymore because, you know, people aren't going to, as she says, you know, the sixth wedding is traditionally small. The next big function that she had coming up was her funeral. She knew exactly what she was going to wear, exactly what I was to wear, yellow, that matched the yellow dress that she was wearing in the large portrait of her that was going to be on the altar next to her casket. Everyone who knew her at all knew, you better wear yellow. Have you written my eulogy, honey? Have you written it? Because I know when I die, you're just going to be too upset. And I really want to make sure that it's, you know, uh, good. And I, Mom, I'm not writing your eulogy. You're not dying. You're not sick. I see. You're just too busy to care about my funeral. And okay, I understand. She even wanted to send a camera crew to my house to videotape me doing the eulogy because she wanted, you know, in the can. (laughs) My mom was always very suicidal. She did not die from suicide. She died the old-fashioned way, cirrhosis of the liver from drinking, you know, a bottle of vodka every day with lots of prescription medication. She decided through the years that she would write the eulogy and then I would read it. It's a huge yellow legal pad with illegible writing. You cannot read one word, just falling off the page and scratches. And so I I had to wing the eulogy. (laughs) When I was looking out, delivering the impromptu eulogy, wearing the yellow dress that matched the yellow dress that's in the huge, huge huge portrait. It's like what rich people do. And so as I'm delivering this impromptu eulogy, I'm looking out amongst the crowds. No other people in yellow besides she and I and my sister. Yet there was about 30 to 40 men donning yellow ties. And I just thought, wow, she got around. That was what drew my attention as I was trying to, like, give her a send-off. Oh, the relief. The Wicked Witch is dead. The Wicked Witch is dead. That is how it felt in our family. Like, oh, my God, we're free. We didn't have that much relief of when my dad died because we, my mom was still there, and it was a, a one-two punch, them together. My mom was much more manipulative. My dad, you know, did all the, you know hitting and molesting and raping, but my mom was the psychological head screwer, kind of um, was always telling you bad things, bad things about your father, bad things about your brother. 
she wanted you to not love anybody else but her. And so we were all had our own relationship with her and we did not have a relationship with the others. We were sad, you know, a little bit, but mostly like, oh, come over to your house. You know, we all started like we could talk. Oh my God, did mom do this? Oh my God, did dad do that? Yes, yes. Oh, did, you know, you had to, there's something about having a memory verified by another that makes it more real. It was so nice to have, you know how they say like army buddies have a foxhole mentality. You could see an army buddy 30 years later, and then it's instantaneous. There's my army buddy. You know, I love that guy. That's how my family, my brothers and sisters are. We lived in this war. We made it out, most of us, not, not all, but most of us made it out intact. We were all loving people, shockingly. That story again was shared by Andrea Abbott. If you'd like to see some photos of Andrea's mother, including the aforementioned uh, gigantic portrait, they'll be up on The Laps' Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Laps Podcast. Andrea has so, so many stories. You can find more of them at andreaabbott.com and on Funny or Die if you give her a look there. Actually, in fact, even this interview, uh, there was more story than I could possibly fit into this episode. So you will find a mini-sode on Patreon covering sort of the repercussions of Andrea's early family years. I'll, I'll give you a glimpse. She had a drug dealer who went by the name Bad News, which I think is probably the greatest drug dealer name I've ever heard in my life. That's up at patreon.com slash the laps. Thanks to this month's executive level patrons, David McCaw, Jill Galvez, Richard Gwartz, 802 Studios, Anthony Cantu, Jennifer Cherney, Matthew Gibson, Cindy Krines, and Rob Holcomb. They and you, if you can spare a couple bucks a month, you're the ones who keep this running. If you have a story to tell, chances are you do. Some of our best stories come from people who never in a million years would have called themselves a storyteller. I'm at stories at thelaps.org. Promise you're in good hands. My name is Kyle Jest, and this was The Laps. Thank you so much for listening. Setting sun, but something only.